0: You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. PWC U.S. Chair and senior partner, Tim Ryan, joins the Post to discuss his company's efforts to promote diversity and inclusion and corporate America's role in addressing systemic racism. Let's listen. Good afternoon, I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for the Washington Post. Welcome to Washington Post Live for another installment in our series, Race in America. Business leaders are becoming more and more vocal on social and political issues and nothing exemplifies that better than the rising opposition to voter restrictions across the country. Just yesterday in a two-page ad right smack in the middle of the Washington Post, the New York Times, and the Wall Street Journal, a who's who of uh, corporate America, philanthropy, and Hollywood declared, quote, we stand for democracy. One of those signatories is with us today, Tim Ryan, U.S. Chair and Senior Partner of PwC-U.S. Mr. Ryan, welcome to Washington Post Live. Thanks,
1: Jonathan, thanks for having me, and it's great to be with you today, thank you.
0: Sure, so on April 1st, um, you you said, we oppose any changes in election laws that result in suppressing lawful votes, especially given their historical use to suppress votes of color. That was April 1st. Why take such a stand?
1: Jonathan, because it's important. One of the things that business leaders need is we need certainty. We need a strong democracy. We want people to work in our country, invest in our country. And we know that the democracy is one of the biggest strengths that we have. It's important for us to do everything we can to make this economy strong. And one of the things that makes this economy strong is a, a democracy where every single person, regardless of where they come, whether they're rich or poor, whether they're black or white, they have the ability to vote in our country. And if that's important, then we need to speak out and let people know about it.
0: So in a story in our paper today um, about the Republican Party and its relationship with the business community and how rocky it is now, there's a quote from Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, um, something he said at the RNC retreat last last week. And here's what he, here's what he said. Quote, major businesses who are getting in bed with the left, the corporate media and big tech, those corporate executives have no backbone. They don't want to be criticized by the corporate partisan media. They cave, they virtue signal in one direction. Your reaction to that very strong reaction to the stand that you and many of your colleagues have made.
1: Jonathan, one of the things that is important um, for everybody to understand is as a CEO, you need to be comfortable taking criticism. That's that comes with the territory. You also have to stand up for what you believe is right at the end of the day. And I don't view this as a political decision. I view this as a matter of what makes our business stronger, what makes our economy stronger and also what is consistent with our values. At times, the left may get upset. At times, the right may get upset. But we have to let people know what we believe is right. Um, I don't view the job as to pander one way, one direction or another, but to let people know what we believe. In this particular case, I don't view it as a Republican, Democrat or political. I view it as what makes the economy stronger and what's consistent with our values. What's clear to us is that when we have everybody participating in our democracy, it makes our economy stronger. And it's also clear to me that, consistent with our values, we need to do everything we can to make sure that everybody is treated equally and everybody gets a fair shot. Um, in a fair right to participate in our democracy. So I wish it was as simple as this is all on one side or all on the other, but it's not. You know, listening to you speak,
0: um, and since you are you are a business leader, I'm glad you are here so I can ask you this question. And you can disabuse me of this thought um, uh, if I need to be. It seems to me that business leaders more and more are shedding their reticence to be vocal and to be active, um it used to be that folks like you would avoid any kind of comment, any kind of controversy, for fear of what it would do to the business. You kept politics at arm's length, except for maybe corporate corporate donations. But it, you know, from I think of Tim Cook of Apple and um, what he did in North Carolina against the the I think it was the bathroom bills that um, you and other corporate leaders coming out and taking much more bold stands, why
1: is that? What changed? Yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a great question. I, I wouldn't just you that. I think we are becoming more and more comfortable about speaking out. I think that comes with the territory of the role of a CEO today. Again, I, I don't view it as our role to be politicians, but I do view it as our role as exemplars, leading thousands of people and interacting with thousands of clients to make sure we speak up on our point of view. And Jonathan, I'll just share with you a quick story. I, I have a wonderful privilege in my role of meeting with hundreds of very, very smart people, CEOs, people like yourself. And I tell people I just have to be a really good listener. Yesterday, I was talking to a Fortune 100 CEO and he said to me, he said, Tim, I'm, I'm in this seat for a very short period of time. I hope when I'm done, people will remember me for making a difference. And we were talking about this issue. And he said, it's incumbent on me to speak out and I want to make sure I leave not only my company, but I want to make sure I leave my communities, my employees better off when I leave. Like that type of thinking is growing more and more across the corporate C-suite than I've ever seen before. Now, your question was why? Like, why is that happening? It's happening, number one, is because we're in a war for talent. Like almost every business is in a war for talent. You want the best talent? You need to make sure they understand what you stand for. You want the best talent, you need a fully inclusive organization. You want the best talent, you need to be willing to stand up when something is important and really speak out about it. And I think CEOs appreciate that. In addition to that, we operate in multiple communities and our communities expect us to contribute, to be active, make a difference. And that's one of the reasons you're seeing people speak out because they want to let communities know their importance. If I can, Jonathan, that is exactly one of the reasons why we've been so vocal and so active in our communities, and we just launched a program at PwC called Action Share Potential. It's a $125 million commitment where we will reach 25,000 diverse professionals and diverse potential professionals, students, to help hopefully give them the digital skills, financial skills, inclusion skills to get to get jobs in our communities. And we are committed to hiring 10,000 of those 25,000 people. You do all that because you want to be seen as making a difference. and in fact, in substance, make a difference.
0: So I hear you on the the war for talent that is driving that is driving this, and that leads me to ask, is the push by um, C-suite executives to be more active and be more vocal? Is that being driven by um your team members, your staff? Is that coming? Is the push coming from the inside? as well as coming from the outside in terms of customers who are also looking to business leaders to reflect their values?
1: Yeah, uh, the answer is yes and yes. It's both, right? It's a great question. Without a doubt, we hear it from our talent. We hear it from our people around. They want to know what are our values? Do we stand for our values? And frankly, they look for evidence, which they should be. They they should look for evidence. The second thing is we are hearing from our clients. Our our clients expect us Stand up. Our clients expect us to have diverse teams, uh, incredibly diverse background of teams, capabilities, and make sure we have different backgrounds. And we are seeing an increasingly stronger drumbeat in our client community around those types of things. And in fact, one of the dialogues I was having very recently with our teams are, "What are we hearing from our clients?" And we are hearing more about looking for more diverse teams. And are we are, are the actions that we're taking coming through? Um, in the teams we present to our clients. And again, as I talk to many CEOs, they're hearing that as well. Like we, I, I say to people very often, we all sit in somebody's supply chain at the end of the day. And what we're all hearing within the supply chain is, are we doing our fair share to make sure we're making each other better? So it is coming from both directions. And, and that makes me proud. Like, that makes me proud because I can see it in all elements. I can see it from our clients and I can see it from our talent.
0: I'm going to get to some specifics about what you've been doing at PwC, but how should corporate executives decide when to weigh in on particular issues? How do you make that assessment? Values is is one aspect, but what, what other aspects come into play?
1: Yeah, again, great question. So as I have the privilege of advising many CEOs, you, you need a framework because unfortunately there's so many issues today when you look at our newsfeed any day, there's so many issues that we could weigh in, and the reality is you can't you can't simply weigh in every time. And sometimes you feel like you're repeating yourself. So you need a framework, and that framework starts with your values. It starts with the expectation, then goes to the expectations of all of your different all of your stakeholders. It goes to what have you said before? Do you, do you need to double down, or have you already covered it, or is it a new topic? And my advice for corporate leaders is have a framework, and also. Don't go it alone. Like we're we're CEOs. I'll tell you, I'll take away something for your listeners. Like, I'm not the smartest person in the world. I'm blessed to have a really good team of people with diverse backgrounds to help me go through that framework around when you speak out. The worst thing you want to do is be caught flat-footed. You want to anticipate, you want to know what's coming. But again, it's got to be grounded in your values and what do you stand for and what are the expectations of your stakeholders.
0: All right, let's go back five years. Let's go back to 2016. Why did you decide to stop work at the firm for a day to hold a company-wide conversation <clears throat> excuse me, about race after the fatal killing of Philando Castile and Alton Sterling and the shootings of police officers in Dallas? I remember that time. It was a very tense time in the country. How did the company-wide conversation go?
1: Yeah, so, Jonathan, if I can, let me get to how we got that, then I'll go to how it went, because it, mm-hmm. it's it's a true story, and I think it's an important learning. It was for me. So I, I became the CEO on July 1, 2016. And I, I say this with a smile, but it's true. Like I, I had, I was a young CEO. I had a really great plan. Like it had, it checked all the boxes, right? It, we were <laughs> gonna grow revenue, we were gonna invest, we are gonna steal market share. Like we were gonna do all the things you would expect to see in a business plan. And the first week, as you point out, it, it had Philandos, it had Alton's killings, and it had the police shootings in Dallas. And then, and then all of a sudden, I realized, and it came from our people that we needed to change that plan and throw it out the window. And one of my people said to me that day, they said, "Tim, I came to work that day, that Friday morning, my first week on the job. I came to work, and the silence was deafening." And Jonathan, like we listen, I listen. And what I realized then was that we we may have a hundred percent physical attendance every day. But if we don't have it here, like, it doesn't matter. Like, 100% physical attendance doesn't equal 100% mental and heart and mind attendance. And for me, that's when I realized something needed to change. And so as you point out, what we did two and a half show show weeks later, which for corporate America and an organization as large as we are, that's a very quick period of time. We made the decision to have our first ever day-long discussion on race, July 21. 2016. And and to be clear, I, I had a number of advisors advise me, should we do that, shouldn't we do it? If we do it, what are the risks? What could go wrong, what could go right? But ultimately we made this decision, if we don't take this step forward, we'll never make the progress we wanna make that we really truly want to make. So we had on July 1, 2016, we shut the firm down for a day. All across the country, we asked our people with no rules, no, no broad or no detailed guidelines, We asked them to talk about the topic of race, whether you're a white man, whether you're a black woman or everything in between, we asked our people to have a discussion around race. I had the privilege of doing it both in Atlanta and New York. And you asked how it went and what we learned. It went terrific. Now, did we hear a lot of things we didn't want to hear? Yes. Did we learn a lot of things that I wish we knew earlier? Yes. Did it go perfectly? No. But it was a major step forward in, in our cultural change, in our evolution as a more inclusive organization that made us better. A couple of things that I learned that, unfortunately, for someone like you, um, it was not news. But for someone like me, it was news. I learned that many of our black professionals carried their PwC business card. So if they got pulled over from the pulled over, they could show the officer that they didn't steal it, that they had a job at PwC. Mm-hmm that they afforded the car, they could afford it. I learned that some of our black professionals in our New York office felt safe in the office, but when they took off their suit and they were going down Sixth Avenue to Central Park to play a softball game, they felt unsafe. Something I, I couldn't relate to up until that time. Frankly, I can't relate to it today, but at least I know it's on their minds and that's how they live. And all across the country, we learned. And that for us was a major moment that we've been building off for the last five years now.
0: And I I have to tell you, that business card point, um, I was nodding vigorously because, and I've said this many times before, I never leave my apartment, and that's even to go downstairs to get the mail without three things, my driver's license, my health insurance card, and sandwiched in between my Washington Post business card with my husband's name and phone number on it. And I usually do, I used to do that when I went running outside. Just one, if I get hit by a car, I can be identified. But also the other reason, so if I get, if I were to be stopped, that, um, you know, law enforcement would uh, would uh, think twice. <laughs> At least that's my hope. Um, you okay. know, you, I, I want to make sure, the story that you told about the PwC employee who said to you, um, that the silence was deafening. Is that the same story as um, that I have here? You were leaving the office, and one of your black one of our black senior managers grabbed me in the lobby and he said, What's your role as a leader of a brand like PWC outside of PWC? Is that the same story?
1: No, two different stories. so and ah. I've been an experienced. I learned, but I'll, I'll put them both in context because that's an important okay. story too. So the, the silence was deafening came on that Friday of the first week in July, the the, right. the day after the shooting, the police shootings in Dallas. And what what I did was I sent out an email and I told our people, I'm, I'm sorry, I know this is tragic. It's on many of your minds. And I got hundreds and hundreds of emails back. And one of them was when I came to work that Friday morning, the silence was deafening. That was what gave us the courage to have this July twenty one day-long discussion are raised. Now, the story you referred to, Jonathan, was after that day, at the end of that day, it was about eight o'clock at night. Mm. I was leaving the New York office and, and frankly relieved, relieved that the day didn't go poorly, relieved that we took a risk. We kind of put ourselves out there as an organization. And I was relieved that it went, we learned and that it went more be- more good than it went bad. And I was relieved. And I was leaving the office Um, at eight o'clock, I was in the lobby of our 300 Madison and one of our black professionals, he was a manager, which means he's been with us roughly 10 years. He stopped me in the lobby and he said, Tim, thank you for the day. I I learned a lot. I hope you did. And I said, yes. He goes, but I have a question for you. Where do we go from here? And and what is your role of the CEO, senior partner of one of the biggest brands out there who interacts with the Fortune 1000 and and big companies? Like, what's your role? And and I will admit, Jonathan, at first I was kind of like, God, can I just have a break? Like, 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 we just had this big day. It took two and a half weeks leading up to it. But that night, I didn't sleep. I didn't sleep. And I tossed and I turned because he was right. Like, he was right. Like, what is the role? Like, what, like our business with a good economy, we're going to do well. And, and a lot of smart people around me were going to do well. He was right. Like, you, like, I'm in this role for a short period of time. What is my obligation to our clients? What is my obligation to our employees to use the platform to try to make a difference. And that then set in motion, that one young man set in motion a whole bunch of dialogues that I had with other CEOs to talk about our role. And that then led to ultimately the launch of this group that you showed in the opening clip, CEO Action for Diversity and Inclusion. One young man challenging me about my role then led to all of those dominoes to fall.
0: Okay, this leads to to a great question um, that I have here. And that is, your advice to other white executives who want to be more proactive in addressing these issues. I mean, what advice do you give them on how to deal with the discomfort that comes yeah. with being vocal and active on social and political issues?
1: Yeah, so one of the things, that I, a couple of pieces of advice, and I actually want to go back to um, uh-huh. the week, the, first, the beginning of July, from the time we decided to do the discussion, to that July 21, so think roughly July 7th to July 21. I, I was in a room with a group of people, primarily white, and, and I said, how many of us, 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 are uncomfortable whether you should use the word black or African American? Half the room raised their hand. And and my first piece of advice would be, don't worry about saying the wrong thing. Most people are gonna cut, cut us slack if we're trying, like if we're legitimately trying, and many white executives It's a pins and needles. Am I going to say the wrong thing? Am I going to get somebody upset? And my first piece of advice was, I I believe in my experiences, most people are coming from the position of trying to do the right thing. So my first piece of advice I learned five years ago, and I'm so blessed to have some people around me to say, Tim, don't worry about it. Like If you're trying to do the right thing, if you're taking actions, if you're leading from the heart, it's going to turn out okay. And so my first piece of advice would be just don't worry about saying the wrong thing. And and then be humble enough to learn if you do say the wrong thing, which we're going to say the wrong thing, because, Jonathan, I, I'm not in your shoes, right? I'm trying, right? But so my first piece of advice is simple. Like, don't worry about saying the wrong thing. That's the first thing. The second thing I would say is we we need to take time to listen and understand. And, and I, like, I think, you know, we've been one of the big pledges of CEO Action is these days of understanding. We happen to be in April. April is the month of understanding. We have... For the last five years, we've been encouraging companies to have these days of understanding. Understand what it's like to be Asian-American in the workplace today. What it's like to be a black professional in the Mm -hmm. workplace. What it's like to be black and have all these things going on in our society and try to focus on work and teaming and, and driving innovation. And so what I would say is my next piece of advice is sometimes we can do more by just listening so just another story Jonathan it's okay so last friday i did one of these i did one of these understandings with our people which i do frequently and i just listened i almost for 90 minutes i i almost di- didn't say anything i, I might have said one or two things I, I just listened and and by listening i am now a better ally and i'm better to help explain i'm better to help to listen i'm i'm better in the majority that i'm in i'm i'm a better position to help lead and explain and try to pull the majority in to help be better allies and and better leaders. So my second piece of advice would be create an environment where you can have these conversations, create an environment where we can learn, pull the majority in to listen and let them know it's okay not to have the answer right away or the solution right away. But then the more we listen, the more we understand what it's like to be in somebody's shoes. So those would be my two pieces of advice. Let me
0: get in this question from uh, from the audience. It's from Marsha Mills, uh, and she asks, "What was the most surprising difficulty in getting other corporate executives execs on board with diversity efforts?"
1: Yeah, uh, thank you, Marsha, for the question. So I would say I, I would say um, I'm not sure I was surprised, but I understand it. It might be a better way to say it. I, I found that. Um, One of the things I learned in my life is you never say all, you never say none, because you'll be wrong, right? Like in in our world, most corporate executives truly want to make a difference here. They they truly do. Like I've had the privilege since starting CEO Action, Uh, I I've spent time with hundreds of executives one on one, and in those conversations, they typically start out with, "Tim, like I understand the business case, I know what I hear in front of people. I'm trying these four things." But, but, it's not making the difference at the at the pace that I would like to make. What more can I do? So, I'm very pleasantly surprised by by the mindset of senior executives in corporate America wanting to make a difference. W- where I think the the challenge is they're 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 trying to figure out how to get there quick. And I think there's a humbling realization that this is going to take time. Now, I also don't use time as an excuse to be clear, but i I would say that, there's a very clear willingness wanting to make a difference. There's now been a a lot of work being done around what are the three or four things I, as an executive, can do to make a difference and have the most impact. So, for example, is it recruiting? Is it education? Is it work in the community? Is it awareness among the majority? Is it accountability? And the answer, as we all know, it's all of the above. So, I think, for me, one of the realizations I've had in working with corporate America is where do they put their energy around to make a difference and how do you make sure you don't spread yourself a mile a mile thin a mile wide and not a mile deep and that that's where I see a lot of dialogue, dialogue happening in corporate America right now
0: you know I wish we had more than a ha- than a half hour because I've got a lot more questions and, and we don't so I'm going to try to squeeze in at least three of these before we run out of time um, PwC is one of the few companies that publicly release its diversity data. What have you learned?
1: Yeah, so what I learned, it was a three-year journey. One of my goals when I came into the role was to be transparent. And our goal was to be one of the most transparent organizations in the country. We studied where everybody was. And our goal was to kind of set a bar, right? And hopefully have people beat us and we keep up. And then this constant peer pressure. What I learned, it's okay not to have a perfect story. I mean, the reality is our transparency report is on our website. We've made progress over the last three or four years, but we're not where I want to be. And we lay our aspirations out in that report. What I learned is that it's okay not to be perfect. And what I learned is that self-imposed pressure is a good thing. Because now that we're out there, we, we have a clear common goal as an organization. But we've laid our numbers out, and every year I expect to see improvement. So I I, I like the idea of self-improved. Um, pressure that we have out there and and I, we were worried like when we showed our story, are people going to criticize us for not being perfect, not being where we want to be and we had very little of that what we got from most is how can we help like how can we help make us make pwc better and i'll take all that help all day long um,
0: uh, just recently today PwC announced it will commit one hundred twenty five million dollars to support black and Latin latinx College students. How, why and how can, how, how can that help?
1: Yeah, so uh, we, we need the next generation of leaders coming into this workplace, we need to do everything we can to position them for success. We are targeting black and, Latin, black and Latinx uh, college students. Um, who, with what we call your Potential. It's a $125 million commitment to help them become better professionals and position them for success in the workplace, focusing on digital skills, inclusion skills, and the like. Um, and we look to hire 10,000 of those 25,000 people. The reason that's so important is we want to make sure when, when these folks come into the workplace, they are positioned for success and that investment is a big investment on our part, but if we're serious about helping our communities, if we're serious about helping the next generation, for me, it's worthwhile money to be spent, and I'm excited about doing it.
0: I'm gonna combine two questions here, uh, and I wanna give you enough time to answer. Um, in, 20, in, in 2018, you spoke at the funeral, and I didn't know this, uh, you spoke at the funeral of um, Botham Jean, who was a PWC employee, um, as some folks might know, he was killed by an off-duty Dallas police officer who shot Jean in his own apartment. One, what impact did that have on you? And then two, as the father of six of six kids, as a parent, um, how do you talk to your children about race? And did the the killing of Botham Jean um, factor into conversations you've had at home?
1: Yeah, um, yeah. Thank you, Jonathan. Um, the single biggest honor I've ever had in my career was in my life was speaking at Bodem John's funeral, um, and for me, it was a wonderful privilege to celebrate the life of a remarkable young man who was killed um, by an off-duty Dallas police officer in his own apartment, watching Thursday night football, um, and his remarkable life was ended way too soon. And what I learned there, and is that Number one, we, we have to heal. I, I, was, I was inspired by the other speakers at his funeral because what they all talked about was healing. What they all talked about was forgiveness and they all celebrated his amazing life. What I also learned about Botham John's death, and I learned this from my own black professionals at PwC, is that we can't be surprised when that happens. Like Botham John came as a shock to us. George Floyd came as a shock to America. It doesn't come as a shock. To black America. And what I learned is that this happens over and over and over again. And it committed me and I promised his mother, I promised his family, we will never forget him. And we will do everything we can to make a difference in our communities to celebrate his life. Um, so that um, that was that one. I honestly forget the last question because I got so caught up in that, I apologize.
0: No, uh, you <laughs> keep going on this because um, because Both of Jean was an employee, I can't imagine, that you did not bring the the anguish uh, and the pain home, and the circumstances oh, yeah. surrounding yep. the loss of this this yeah. employee. Um, how do you talk to your children about about race?
1: Yeah, often, like often, and it's it's frequently a dialogue we have at home and with six children, and um. We, we talk about our role. We talk about the need. We talk about some of the history and disadvantages that we have to come to grips with. We talk about the role that we play as individuals. We talk about how every action that we take matters. And I'd like to just share with you two really, really, really quick stories. Sure. One goes back to 2016 when um, my son, who's a sports, um, the football player, and he, he loves sports. And he, he, I was actually over in Germany at the time. And he sent, I was in a meeting and it was it was, don't tell my PWC colleagues, it wasn't a terribly exciting meeting. And um, <laughs> my son sent me a text. He sent me a text and he and he said, Dad, here's a NFL story about a retired NFL player who's trying to pull together NFL players, NFL executives to talk about what the NFL can do around race. And he sent me the article and I sent I texted him back and I said, Jack, I'm really proud of you. And he said, Dad, thank you, but you made me who I am. And and Jonathan, like I I was proud, right? Like he he was listening. Just like in the last month, maybe the last two weeks, my daughter said, "Dad, can can we watch Harry Tubman movie? Like, can we? I, I want to learn more." And so like as with six kids, there's highs and lows as a parent. But um, we talk about it a lot. They know we have a role to play, and and I'm I'm proud of the role they're playing. How old is your son? Uh, 17, 18. He just turned 18. Um,
0: yeah. So but this was in 2016, that story. 30, so he 15, was, yeah. was 13. 13. And, yeah. and then I think you said your daughter wanted to watch. How, how old is she? Fifteen. Fifteen. Yeah. Fifteen. Um, yeah, uh, wow. To have to have your own son say uh, you made you made me who I am. Uh, I'm not even a parent and I'm uh, choked up. Um, hearing that. Tim Ryan, as you can tell, I could sit here and, and talk to you all day, but we are we are out of time. Uh, Tim Ryan, CEO of PwCUS, thank you very much for coming to Washington Post Live.
1: Thank you, Jonathan, for having me, and please take care. Thank you very much.
0: And thank you for tuning in. Join me tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Eastern for First Look, your one-stop shop for news and analysis from the reporters and columnists here at The Washington Post. Until then, I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for The Washington Post. Thank you for tuning in to Washington Post Live. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.